0: Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and today, Prince of Peace. And today, as in all days, we need to do this. We need to look to Jesus. So, as we get to Isaiah chapter 9, I want to share a part of a poem. Yeah, I know, some of you aren't big poetry people. Well, I'll get over that. Hopefully, you will be more so after this. But one of my favorite Christmas poems... You might be familiar with it from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow called Christmas Bells. And it goes like this. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was an if, as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the houses born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Henry wrote this in 1863 after receiving news earlier that December that his oldest son, Charlie, had been shot during the Civil War. bullet exiting from under his right shoulder blade, traveling across his back and skimming his spine. The initial prognosis was that he would be paralyzed. So as Henry heard the bells that Christmas day, the thought and singing of peace Seem to be a far cry from reality. that, That poem goes on. But isn't that where we continually seem to be in our day? For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. You only need to press a button on a TV. And what to our wondering eyes should appear? But violence, political corruption... Wars and rumors of wars. Sorrow upon sorrow. You don't even have to turn on the TV. It can be happening in your own lives. As my family and I experienced this past weekend, one need only to go push the brake pedal on your vehicle on an icy road and discover that if just one thing's off, that is traction, how easily peace disappears. Yet yeah, we long for it, don't we? It's like we were made for it. Isn't that the isn't the whole reason Longfellow bowed his head in despair, the whole reason we grieve over things, the whole reason we experience a sense of loss? It's because we long for peace. And it's because we still believe that peace is somehow possible. Where there is no peace, there is darkness. And in the prophet Isaiah's day, most of the people knew nothing of peace. They stumbled around in darkness. But his message to them and to us today is that but God was not done. He had to bring peace, or he had peace to bring peace for them. Peace for us. So would you stand this morning as we read God's word from Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Where is peace to be found? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness. On them, light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden You know, it almost seems like a dream, doesn't it? But here it is, almost a thousand years before Jesus was born. And here we are, gathered today, because the Prince of Peace came. And he has begun to reign. You and I need to know and be reminded today that peace, real peace, is possible with this Prince of Peace. So as we look at our passage today, did you know that God desires peace? There will be no gloom. How do we know that God desires peace? How can we believe that God desires peace? There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Who's talking here? Who's talking in this passage? Who's telling us this? Yes, it's Isaiah, but on whose authority is he saying these things? And if it's anyone but the Lord God, the Prince of Peace, we should not listen to this book. If it's not the Prince of Peace who's telling us these things, he is daring to sell us false hope. We here at York Evangelical Free Church agree with the Evangelical Free Church of America's statement of faith, 10 statements, the second of which says regarding the Bible, we believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both old and new testaments, through the words of human authors, as the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original uh, in the original writings the complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Why do we believe this? Well, if you read this book, from Genesis 1, verse 1, to Revelation 22, verse 21, the message of this book is consistent. It's the same voice. God's voice does not change. His plan does not change. His purposes does not do not change. He has the aim of revealing himself to people made in his image, you and me, to reconcile them to himself reconcile us to himself by exalting his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and restoring peace to the world that has rebelled against him. Even in Genesis, after Adam and Eve had rejected God by listening to the voice of the serpent, God promises peace. Have you read this? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, God says to the serpent, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God's promise, all the way back in Genesis, is that the offspring of the woman shall destroy the serpent. That's what it means when it says, bruise his head. The serpent was the one who took away peace. And God's promise is that the one who takes away peace will not ultimately prevail. And we read in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the work, uh, works of the devil, that serpent. So in other words, one of the works of the devil was to destroy peace, the peace as God had given the world. But the Son of God appeared to take away the destroyer of peace and his works of destroying peace. So Jesus comes as the Prince of Peace to bring what? Peace! And because this message is consistent across the whole of the Scriptures and that God has demonstrated it through his Son, we can believe that when God says through Isaiah that there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, Jumping down to verse 4, the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. God is saying that the implements of war and bloodshed, the things that take away peace, are going to be done away with because God wants peace if he's willing to promise a removal of gloom, a removal of darkness, a removal of war, a fighting of bloodshed, he desires peace. We must know him as a God who desires peace. But we have to stop at this point and ask, if God wants peace, what's his definition of peace? And I say we have to stop and ask this question, because... So often, we think that God is like us. And we think that when we think of something, God thinks of it, thinks of it exactly the same way. I mean, we th- often think, and often foolishly, that God thinks just like us with powerful words like love. Or hate, or judgment, or desire, or forgiveness, etc., we oftentimes think that he thinks of peace the same way we do. So, does God think of peace the same way we think of it? Is peace simply the absence of conflict? Is peace, can't we all just get along? You know, Linda highlighted it, well, the word most often used in the scripture that we translate peace is shalom, or an A Greek word, irene. In God's world, peace is not so much the absence of something, but much more the fullness of something. Look here in Isaiah. Not just no gloom. Verse 1. But in the latter time he has made glorious glory, that which we were made to reflect God is being found in what? He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Glory is being found in Israel, and it's also being found in the place of the nations, which can also be translated as the Gentiles, non-Jews. And not just no darkness, but they have seen a great light, verse 2. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. Not merely a lack of sorrow, but, verse 3, you have multiplied the nation's nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And not just the removal of war and bloodshed and chaos, but, verse 6, for to us a child is born. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There is so much more fullness in God's idea of peace than there is the absence of things. Peace is life made whole. Peace is the soul finally at rest. Peace is God on his throne, reigning perfectly in every way and justice and righteousness being throughout all of his creation. Does God want peace? He wants it more than you and I ever can. But in order for this to be brought about, God must act. And if you've ever been in conflict, trials, troubles, crisis, peacelessness, I think that's everybody here. You know that in order for there to be peace, it's going to cost somebody something. Peace is costly. You know the bumper sticker, freedom isn't free. Why is that the case in our world? Well, because it's a fallen world and peace, freedom, doesn't just happen. In fact, what does happen if we are left to ourselves, as the book of Roman indicates, is that we will choose to worship created things rather than our creator every time. And that is peacelessness. That is conflict. That is rebellion. And we perpetuate again and again peacelessness against God. So what is the cost of peace? Have you ever thought about that question? How would you answer it? Some people would say, well, you've just got to let bygones be bygones. And then you can have peace. And others say, well, you've got to give a little, and they've got to give a little, and then you can have peace. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. Diplomacy. Sometimes the cost goes a bit up. Paying or cajoling someone to keep quiet. Or it can go higher... The United States of America said it was willing to pay for peace during World War II with the lives of roughly 420,000 Americans and as many, potentially, if not more, enemy lives to secure peace. So, what about God? What's the cost of peace with God? What do you have to pay for peace with God? Well, 100% of human polls say basically, well, if you follow all the right rules, or do all the right things, or do enough good to outweigh your bad, or are sorry enough about the bad that you did, then you can do it. Then you can have peace with God. (laughs) Well, what does God say? Because human polls, being what they are, if God is the supreme authority... He is the judge after all. And what Abraham said is true in Genesis 18, verse 25. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, he shall do what is just. And what does he say? Romans 6, verse 23, he says this through the Apostle Paul. For the wages of sin is death. And through James, he says this in chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So that means that if you or I fail to keep God's commands at just one spot, no matter how big or small we think that spot might be, no matter how big our repertoire of accomplishments in God's economy is, we're guilty of breaking every single piece of it. And do you know what breaking God's law is called? Sinning. And what did Romans 6, verse 23, that the wages, the cost, the payment, the consequences of law-breaking, of sin is? Death. So what do you think? Can you come, can I come, to the judge of all the earth and say that we've never sinned? Can you come to him and proclaim that you have been perfect and have done perfect? If you have, Proverbs verse 30, verse 20 has something to say. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done nothing wrong. It is a lie to claim oneself perfect, and arrogant pride, both of which God hates, by the way, both of which break His law. So can you buy your peace with God? If you have just one offense, can you buy your peace with God? Not with an infinity of lifetimes. Because we are sinners by nature and by choice we cannot afford the high peace the high price for peace and we of ourselves would never pay it. we would always choose something else, even though we want it. so for you who are already Christians you, you probably know where I'm going with this <laughs> okay so we need to pause and ask. If you've already become a Christian, has peace become cheap to you? What do I mean? I mean, one of God's biggest priorities for His church is that we dwell together in unity. Does that just happen in the church? I mean, yes, we are people who are saved by grace and grace alone through faith in Christ alone. So... Does that mean that peace is then a hands-off affair? Do we believe that God's grace is enough to get us into the kingdom, but not it doesn't have much to do with changing our lives as we live in the kingdom, motivating us to actually get our hands in? You know, if that was the case, that gra- His grace wasn't enough, Man, there's a whole lot of Scripture that says otherwise. Be at peace with one another, Jesus said. Mark 9, verse 50. Let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual building. Romans 14, verse 19. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11. Urge... I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, verses 1 and 3. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Colossians 3, verse 15. Pursue peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 2 Timothy 2, verse 22. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Hebrews 12, verse 14. And finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this. You are, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Have we let go and let God in a way that says we're not going to participate in obeying the command to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, of which seeking and making peace is a part? It's costly. Imagine. You are in a bitterly cold. Deep trench. On Christmas Eve. 1914. During World War One, And as you shiver there. As a soldier with your rifle. Across the battered no-man's-land battle zone covered with the frozen dead of your enemies and your fallen comrades. You hear across, across that lace, wasteland na, na. from German Trenches. You do? Would you keep your rifle aimed at them? Any of them pop up, you fire? Well, what actually happened is called what has been called the Christmas Truce. One soldier recorded that the Germans said, English soldier, English soldier, a Merry Christmas, a Merry Christmas. Come out, English soldier, come out here to us. And he writes, for some little time we were cautious and did not even answer. Officers, fearing treachery, ordered the men to be silent. But up and down our line, one heard the men answering that Christmas greeting from the enemy. How could we resist wishing each other a Merry Christmas? Even though we might be at each other's throats immediately afterwards. Blood and peace, enmity and fraternity, war's most amazing paradox. The night wore on to dawn, a night made easier by songs from the German trenches, the piping of piccolos, and from our broad lines, laughter and Christmas carols. Not a shot was fired. In fact, some accounts even say they played soccer together and allowed each other to bury their dead that peace that truce as you probably know was short lived millions more would die in that war after that and they wouldn't celebrate Christmas Eve the same way who can pay the price high enough for peace. True peace. Much more everlasting peace. Who can give grace such that the church can be those who bring the gospel of peace, not only to its own, but to the world? You know, we are those nervous soldiers still in the muddy and cold trench of death. And it is Christ, the Lord Jesus who comes across no man's land. That infinite gulf which sin has created between God and all humanity. And we see him, and with rifles shaking in our hands, we hear him say, like he did when he entered the locked room where the disciples had hid themselves after he was crucified, he showed up and he said, Peace be with you. And then he says, like he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Where is there peace? There is peace with the Prince of Peace. Who can pay the infinite cost but he who is infinite? And who can pay the cost that mankind, humankind, owed but one who is himself a man? But no ordinary man could do that. And a God who only takes from his subjects can't do it and would not do it. But Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, our Prince of Peace, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is peace with the Prince of Peace. Therefore, Paul goes on to say after telling of Christ's exaltation, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The commands are not given without help. As we pursue peace, church, we do not need to fear to do it alone. for all the peace that we seek in our lives, none is more important than peace with God. If there is no Prince of Peace, we have no peace, either with God or with each other. And if we reject the Prince of Peace, we have no peace, either with God or with each other. Because Jesus is not just a nice guy. Nor is he a nice little God who brings peace, shooting little peace arrows like as if he were Cupid. No, he is called the Prince of Peace. And in order for us to have peace, in order for us to seek peace and pursue it, and actually cultivate it, we have to to submit to the prince. You see, peace does not come on our terms. In calling us to believe in him, in calling us to have faith in him, what is Jesus doing? He demands surrender. And one of the most powerful statements of the conditions of peace, the terms of peace, if you will, came from Jesus' own mouth during His earthly ministry. He says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34 and 39, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Wait, what? I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life shall lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will If you want peace, if you want real peace, forever peace, the kind of peace where there will be one day no fighting, no wars, no bloodshed, no conflict, but instead life as it was meant to be lived, life to the full, forever, whole, healed, perfect, never-ending, joy upon joy, you must lay everything you hold dear at his feet. Even those relationships which are most precious you must step down off the, off of his throne in your life. And as Jesus said to paraphrase, you must let go of your spiritual death in order to have life. Yep, you have to let go of death in order to have life. We do not have room in our hands for peace if we're clutching to our sins. Sp- When we refuse to believe him, refuse to confess our sin, to own up to them, to repent of them, to forsake them, we won't have room for peace. Why? Because we're holding on to the very things the Prince of Peace died to take away. Sin is antithetical to his nature. If we have sin in our hands while while we say we want peace, it's like holding a dagger in your hand while you're saying you want peace. But because he is the Prince of Peace, we can lay down that dagger. We can step off his throne. We can forsake our sins. We can let go of our lives and receive his life. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 19 on this. He says, Remember that you Gentiles and everybody were at one time separated from Christ Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is peace with the Prince of Peace. Just look around this room. No, I'm serious. Look around. Yes, this town is smaller than some. And yes, some of you come from even smaller towns. But you know, if Christ had not broken down the wall of hostility and made us fellow citizens and members of the household of God, how likely would it be that we would be involved in each other's lives at least once a week? What is the likelihood that we would be in the same room together and in the same room together as a brother and sister? Only the Prince of Peace has made that a reality. When our experience of peace seems to say that there is no peace, you know, in one sense, we may be right. All things are under Christ's authority, but not all things are yet in submission to him. How can there be peace then? whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Jesus followed his own words because the Prince of Peace has purchased peace at great cost to himself out of great love for his Father and great love for us. You know, I mentioned at the beginning that Henry Longfellow did not end his poem He didn't end it with, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And if God had ended the Bible right after Adam and Eve had disobeyed him in the garden, we would know nothing of the Prince of Peace. We would have no reason for being here, no reason for hope for peace no reason to believe that it was possible. But it didn't end there. And it's because it didn't end there that we can rightly say, actually along with Longfellow in the final stanza of his poem, he is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. then he writes, then pealed the bells more loud and deep God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We have been given the one called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is Jesus, the Son of God. It is in him and him alone where we shall find peace and become those who bring the message of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to a world to whom God sent his peace, that men and women from every tongue, tribe, nation, people should have peace. Verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over to his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Will you pray with me? Father, do it. Lord Jesus, you have done it. Lord, bring all things into submission under you. Thank you for paying for peace with your life, that we might have life. Thank you for paying for peace by dying, that we too might die to ourselves, that we might find life. I pray, Lord, not just in this Christmas season, but in every season of our lives, that we would be those who bear the gospel and bring the gospel of peace. Lord, we confess that we often want to bring it on our terms. Please forgive us, and please help us to bring it on your terms, to accept it as yours. And help us to know that your way of Peace is far more grand, far more superior, far better than ours could ever be. Fill our hearts with peace. Fill this place with peace. Fill this world with your peace, Lord. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name.